everyone, this is Kate Kelly, founder of Ordain Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique and totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can. If you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we are going to be talking about some really intense themes of violence and abuse today. So if you have young children in the room, I would strongly recommend that you do not listen to this with children in the room. And I am warning you that later on in the podcast, we will be talking about some very upsetting things. This has probably to date been the most difficult podcast for me to record. And I apologize for some of the violence that I will be talking about. I have really grappled and wrestled with this story for months and months and months, trying to be selective of what I'm going to talk about so I'm not bordering on some sort of exploitative salaciousness for the sake of entertainment. So I've been very careful in what I've selected. That said, there are very strong themes of abuse. And if you are not able to handle that with your emotional bandwidth, then I would recommend checking out the other podcast episodes and clicking some of the links that on the website that do not have a trigger warning. By way of other announcements, the yearofpolygamy.com site is almost ready. You can go to it now and sort of see the site. We have a lot of work to do still with it. But pretty soon, you'll be able to link to yearofpolygamy.com when sharing this podcast to your friends and family. So that's exciting news. Again, I wanted to thank all the subscribers and donors who made that podcast possible, who helped donate funds to the website and the web design and the server fees. Uh, that was entirely done by donations, and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I hope that we'll get it up and running very, very soon. I realize that, that many listeners will be listening to this months and months and months and possibly even years from the time that this episode was recorded. So you might be listening to this on yearofpolygamy.com as it is. So let's get into the story of the Kingston family. Before we do that, I want to go back in history all the way back to 1831. On February 4th, 1831, Joseph Smith Jr. said he received a revelation that called Edward Partridge to be the first bishop of the church. Five days later, on February 9th, 1831, Joseph Smith describes a revelation 
detailing the law of consecration. Of course, we fast forward to the Utah period in 1874 when Brigham Young, after trying it in the Mormon Reformation and not making it work, finally initiates the Order of Enoch, which is this idea of the United Order. And of course, we've done an entire episode on this, and you can go back and listen to that. And I would highly, highly recommend that and see what parallels you can draw with the story today. The reason why I'm talking about the United Order, this Order of Enoch, is because this is a theme that runs throughout Mormon history. And when we talk about Mormon fundamentalism, it's interesting to note that all the different groups take different parts of Mormon doctrine and theology and culture and sort of amplify those, and they call themselves fundamentalists. I would argue that, as far as word of wisdom goes, the LDS branch, my branch of Mormonism, is more fundamentalist than many other groups. Now, you might have some groups that believe the sealing power or baptisms for the dead or polygamy is their fundamental doctrine. Interestingly enough, the group that we're going to talk about today, the Kingston group, their fundamental doctrine is sort of um, organized around polygamy, but that is not the central focus of how this group came to be. It was the United Order. So I want you to keep that in the back of your head, that this group was not set out to be a polygamous group by any means. This group was really focused on the United Order, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. In 2003, Anne Wilde, the polygamy advocate who started Principal Voices, she's also a lovely, wonderful person, collected explanations from all of the groups for the fundamentalist magazine, The Mormon Focus. She was generous enough to share these uh, stories with me so we can hear the narrative from an anonymous member of the Davis County Cooperative Society sharing their story. It's important that we try to let these people in each of these groups tell their stories as much as possible. So this is how a member of the Kingston group explains their group. Quote, The Davis County Cooperative Society was formed in 1935 by Charles Eldon Kingston. At that time, a handful of families got together to help each other be self-sufficient. This was during the worst part of the Depression, when jobs were scarce and it was difficult to feed a family. These families believed they would be better off working together than working alone. They came together with common ideas of integrity, honesty, and living the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Each person was encouraged to be self-sustaining by means of his or her own labors. The Davis County Cooperative Society is not a religious organization. It is a place where people with different religious beliefs can work together. Our society supports the ideas of free agency and respect for other people's opinions and beliefs. The Davis County Co-op supports traditional family values. We love our families and our children. They are our highest priority. Our goal is to make the community better because we are here. We employ many people and pay taxes, which is an economic boost to the community. Credit for any success we have had is due to, first to Heavenly Father's blessings. We acknowledge his hand in all things. Our success is also due to the hard work, loyalty, and commitment of our members, employees, and customers. We appreciate all of them and work for their continued success. End quote. While this narrative is a bit reductive of the history, because it had to be for this magazine article, it does point to something particular about this specific group. Each fundamentalist group takes an aspect of Mormonism and really amplifies it, like I said. 
This group, the Kingston Group, have a very large focus on the United Order. Now, it's important that when we're talking, there are many names for this group. Uh, if I accidentally say the Kingston Clan, um, that will be an accident. Clan is a pejorative that these groups do not like to have associated with them, but the press will often call them and quote them as the Kingston Clan. The official group is the Davis County Cooperative Society, but I will interchange that term with the word the Kingston Group because it's very much focused on the Kingston family. Let's go back and understand the fires in which this group was forged in because it's interesting as we're studying these different fundamentalist groups to realize that we're all connected, but we're also different. And so our connections are enough to have LDS members join one group, maybe the AUB, and then someone from the AUB might join the Kingston group, and the Kingston group might join the LeBaron group, and the LeBaron group might come back to the LDS church. Everyone's sort of bouncing around, and that's still happening today. Let's find out the history of this group. On one of the Kingston's trips to Salt Lake City, Charles Kingston met Charles Zinning, a Latter-day Saint who was married to three plural wives but had not been excommunicated by the LDS Church. Charles Zinning introduced Charles Kingston to John W. Woolley, who we just talked about in our last episode. Woolley had performed Zinning's plural marriages. In 1928, Charles W. Kingston was barred from entering the Salt Lake Temple when Temple President George F. Richards learned that Kingston did not agree with the LDS Church's 1890 and 1904 renunciations of plural marriage. Kingston was not a practicing polygamist and was initially opposed in his beliefs by his wife and children and all of his parents who tried to convince him to abandon his belief in plural marriage in order to prevent his excommunication from the LDS Church. However, it took some time and he finally gained the support of his wife and children. So Charles W. Kingston becomes disenchanted with the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because he felt like they were selling out and that they had abandoned these important doctrines. In 1931, Charles Kingston and Jesse Burke Stone began writing about this. They publish a pamphlet called Layman Manasseh Victorious, and it sort of justifies the continued Mormon practice of plural marriage. Kingston, of course, writes under the pseudonym William K. Ray. Kingston uses this as an opportunity to sort of crystallize and articulate his beliefs, and he becomes almost dogmatic about it. He begins preaching polygamy against amongst the fellow members of the LDS Church. He distributes pamphlets and, and this book, Layman Manasseh Victorious, a message of salvation and redemption to his people Israel, first to Ephraim and Manasseh. And this eventually results in his excommunication from the LDS Church. He was excommunicated on March 3rd, 1921, and the disciplinary council tried to talk him out of this. They, they wanted to give him six months to reconsider his position before excommunicating him. And this points to another aspect. When we're talking about all these different group leaders, you'll notice that all of their disciplinary courts are different. And so this idea that we talk about in contemporary Mormonism of leadership roulette, that there's not a consistent policy, we see this played out. Uh, different, different, you know, high councils and state presidencies and, and even the first presidency handles these situations on a case-by-case basis. Although they're trying to give Kingston six months, Kingston insists that the council make an immediate decision. He is really pressing them on this. And then Kingston claims that seven days later, after his excommunication on March 12th, he is in a cave in northern Davis County and has a vision 
that God, the Father, and Jesus Christ reassure him that he had made the right decision. And they also inform him that he needs to start a United Order regimen. So, again, even though he was excommunicated over polygamous issues, he was not really focused on that. He he believes that God is telling him that he's on the right track, and yes, the LDS Church is an apostasy. However, the focus needs to be on the United Order Regimen, just like Joseph Smith tried in 1831, just like Brigham Young tried in 1874. By 1935, Kingston is starting to develop followers. So he takes the group to Bountiful, Utah. They do this to escape harassment, ridicule, and ostracism from members of the community that remained loyal to the LDS Church. Kingston has now been marked. He's excommunicated. They don't tolerate his ideas in the same way that they did. And Kingston is really starting to talk about the United Order. He's going back to his roots, the historical roots of the LDS Church, and making a case for this. So this group arrives in Bountiful, one family at a time, and they plan to combine their resources to escape the hardships of the Great Depression. Now, I cannot emphasize enough how much the Great Depression has an impact on the popularity of the Davis County Co-op. Just like Brigham Young was finally able to get the United Order off after severe, severe depredation and starvation in Utah. And there there are a lot of sociological elements that, are, that could be explored here, but uh, there is definitely a pattern. The first five families to arrive form a governing council, and they elect Charles Eldon Kingston, who happens to be Charles W. Kingston's son, as the leader of the council. So now that this is going to be confusing as we talk about this because there are so many Kingstons. Two of them are named Charles. Charles W. Kingston is the first dude to go through this. He is excommunicated from the LDS Church. His son, Charles Eldon Kingston, is the leader of the council. So to avoid confusion, we're going to call him Eldon, as did some of his followers, to avoid confusion. Now, Charles W. King- Kingston at the time is supporting the leadership of John W. Woolley, Lawrence E. Woolley, and J. Leslie Broadbent. But later on, his son Eldon would actually turn this group into a more religious organization, the Latter-day Church of Christ. Now, it's important that that quote I met I read from the 2003 magazine that Ann Wilde had given me mentions from a member that this is not a religious organization. And we're going to see that theme playing out as we talk about this in just a minute. Eldon establishes the Latter-day Church of Christ. The church had soon become established um, before J. Leslie Broadbent dies in 1935. And it's sort of kind of, you know, organic how this forms. They start this co-op, and then they think, oh, well, people need a church to go around to. But that's not what the co-op is about. The church is just something that we do in the meantime. Charles would eventually join his son's church after its creation, and he supports his son, Eldon Kingston. And Eldon actively leads the Latter-day Church of Christ until his death in 1948. When Eldon was in his mid-20s, he began to question mainstream Mormonism. With the support of his mother and father, Charles Investa Kingston, he helps his dad found the Davis County Cooperative Society. And they really try to establish this united order. 
1941, this community that was founded by Charles W. Kingston finally officially declares themselves the Davis County Cooperative Society. So, you know, they're moving in the 30s. It's a way to sort of move away from and support each other during the Depression. And by 1941, they're calling themselves the David Davis County Cooperative Society. They officially are incorporated. The corporation was supposed to produce goods and services that would be used by the members, and they would sell this and trade this to other members and sometimes to the public. The co-op is going to run under something like, if you know anything about the mining conflicts in the early part of American history in the late 1880s up until the, you know, 50s, it's sort of the same idea. Like the West Virginian mines, miners were part of an economic system controlled by the coal industry, and miners worked within company mines with company tools and equipment that which they were required to lease. They had company housing, and the cost of the items came from the company store and was deducted from their pay. And the stores themselves sometimes charged overinflated prices, and so there was no alternative for purchasing goods because they were paid in company money, and the company money was then given back to the company store. So these miners sort of become locked into the system. The co-op is going to be set up under a similar sort of system, with a few exceptions. Like other fundamentalists, Eldon Kingston believed that God required him to live the principle. The co-op was not founded for polygamy. It was founded for sharing goods. And of course, we have talked in this podcast about the themes of women considered goods and exchange of, you know, purchases. But the Kingstons are in one way progressive in this sense and in another way not progressive. Women are seen more equitable as far as property goes, and, and so are children, but not much. The idea is in the, in the order, in the co-op, Everybody is property of the co-op. And of course, when you mix polygamy into the mix, it becomes a hierarchical, patriarchal organization. And of course, a hierarchy starts to form. And those who practice polygamy in the Davis County Cooperative Society were considered better or higher or more righteous. Eldon establishes the rule, the golden rule, and I'm going to read to you sort of what their mission statement was. Quote, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Abolish war and bloodshed of all kinds to bring about the conditions so that all incorporators are self-sustaining by means of their own labors, which labors are performed in perfect harmony with all other incorporators to establish peace, goodwill, and brotherly love between all men as well as all incorporators. To obtain, operate, and own lands, homes, factories, equipments, machinery, and production, and raw material, all for the purposes of producing the everyday necessities and comfort of life for the incorporators. The corporation shall produce goods and services to be used by members and to be exchanged with and sold to other cooperators, cooperatives, and the public for other goods and services or cash, end quote. Although Charles W. Kingston was excommunicated and marked in his own community, this idea, this idea of a cooperative, was appealing to many LDS Mormons, particularly Mormons who struggled through the Great Depression. There's a book that I'm going to link to that is a great read if you're interested in understanding sort of what it was like to grow up in this early society. Vicki Burgess's biography on Lorraine Ekstrom Kingston is, is titled The Midwife. And here is how Vicki Burgess describes Eldon, Eldon Kingston. Quote, 
When Laureen was about four years old, relief from the Great Depression arrived by the way of the strangest-looking young men ever to set foot in the town. Eldon Kingston, Clyde Gustafson, and Marion Brown had long braided hair and were dressed in a matching blue color. The reason they stopped was for gas and route to a farm Marianne's family owned in the Teton Valley east of Rexburg. That area, bordering Wyoming by Utah and Idaho polygamists, had always held an appeal for fundamentalists. While in Kimball, Idaho, the young men met with Lorraine's uncle, Burke Franston. They told him they were on a fast, not eating, to receive spiritual guidance, end quote. So these guys are starting to do sort of missionary work. They're traveling and they're telling as they're going about, they look like these pilgrims, right? They're letting their hair grow long and they're braiding it. And during the first few years of their cooperative society, Kingston and his followers were unique outer garments. Um, they were, they believed that this made them more simple and that garments were blue. And so this led to people referring to them as blue coats. Men and boys would wear blue coverall type suits tied with strings and women and girls wore plain blue dresses. This was sort of seen as a symbol of their renunciation of all worldly goods. Their outer clothing contained no pockets to represent that, you know, they didn't want to have any possessions that would be carried, although later an inside pocket was provided so that people could put a handkerchief in if they needed it. And all went bareheaded and barefoot. So this becomes sort of this extreme idea of simplicity. And uh, these guys go up through Idaho on their way to the Teton Valley, sort of preaching this idea of simplicity, of Christ-like love. They're pilgrims. They're using Mormon language. They're using Mormon ideas that they were brought up in. But they're also kind of going back to this early Mormon doctrine, this this idea of of one heart and one mind. The co-op, again, was never meant to be religious, and Eldon once said, quote, anything that flies a religious flag will fail, end quote. Their only stated purpose at this time was to be as much like Christ as they could possibly be. This reminds me of the sort of fire and zeal that we see in the early 1870s with Brigham Young. You know, people are poor and impoverished. They're looking again for hope in one of these gospel principles. And upon meeting these three men, several families in Idaho at once turned their homes, their farms, and all their property over to these men. They're so excited to live the principle. They're so excited to sort of have their poverty celebrated as a, as a holy principle of God. They had struggled through the Great Depression, many of them barely surviving, many of them combining their resources and already living in the sort of communal aspect. So this seemed like the perfect fit. Now I want to talk about something. I'm going to take a side note for a minute. There's there's a really interesting book that was recommended to me by Stephen Carter. It's called The Different Drum, Community Making and Peace. And the author M. Scott Peck is sort of controversial, but he talks a lot about community dynamics. And he says that to build a community, you need three things. You need inclusivity, commitment, and consensus. And he talks about in his book, The Different Drum, all the stages that you have to go through in building a community. And the first stage is pseudo-community, where well-intentioned people try to demonstrate their ability to be friendly and sociable, 
but they really do not get into the heart of the issues. So when they're talking about building this community, they're using obvious generalities and stereotypes that appeal to everybody, like the idea of we're all going to be of one heart and one mind, something that everyone says, yeah, that sounds pretty good, I could do that, or there will be no poor among them. Yeah, I could do that, that sounds great. And so this is the first step, and of course it inevitably leads to some sort of chaos until people are able to be more realistic with each other and to be more whole. And if they can go through that chaos stage and come out of it acknowledging their humanness, then the community is healthy. Of course, communities don't usually, they get stuck on that step, so they are kind of stuck in the pseudo-community. Peck also argues in his book that anytime there's, and, I, and I'm wildly paraphrasing here, so I'd recommend if you're interested in this, you can read the research. But basically, anywhere that there's this idea of communalism, this idea of one heart and one mind, there is this inevitable sexual energy that has to be accounted for. And in the case of Mormonism, Mormon doctrine has a mechanism for that energy, and we call it polygamy. It's flawed in its equity, but it shouldn't be a surprise that the co-op soon become becomes fundamentally tied to plural marriage. Because when you're coming with this idea of sharing everything, you have to account for how you define your relationships. And of course, Mormonism allows for it to be with polygamy, which has some problems, like I said, with equity. So let's go back to Laureen Ekstrom. She was that tiny girl living in Idaho when her mother and uncle were seduced by the I, the old ideas of the United Order restored. So they turn over their farm and all they have. Laureen's father is a Lutheran. He's skeptical, but he's poor. His options are limited. So they travel in an open wheat truck from Idaho to the promised land of Bountiful, Utah. In Bountiful, people were required to rid themselves of all worldly attachments. They had to throw out all material possessions and only keep the bare necessities. They even were told to get rid of old photographs to sever emotional connections to the past. And this was supposed to create a new heaven on earth and to show their commitment to the community. And Lorraine's father struggles with this because he's not really believing these ideals yet. So he mails a lot of the old photographs and his trinkets to his brother for him to enjoy. At this time, every family head was assigned a number, and this indicated their position in the hierarchy, starting with Eldon Kingston, listed as number one. Lorraine's father, Ernie, would become number 20, and this starts to work on him. Ernie gets sort of caught up in this idea, although he's skeptical of religion and the Mormon religion, he loves this idea of community working together. He is really sort of seduced by these men's um, passion and commitment. And so he really is pleased that he is number 20 to have such a low number close to the leadership. He's so pleased that he engraves this number on all of his tools because he's a carpenter. At first, houses were identified by the name of the family occupying them or by their owners, such as Briggs Place or the Ellis House or the Staley House, etc. Most of the co-op houses would be sort of like a duplex, but with a common kitchen and a common bathroom, and they would have two families living in them. This was designed to help integrate polygamy uh, so a man could easily go between each family. Although 
monogamous like Lorraine's family share these homes as well. Lorraine's mother tries to, her, her mother Blenda is her name. Blenda tries to get Ernie to live the principal and Ernie does not want to do this. So Lorraine grows up in a monogamous home and that's an important distinction as well. But Lorraine's family moves into a home and they share it with another family. There's only one bathroom. Sometimes they would have an additional outhouse if they were lucky. Uh, Lorraine talks about the sort of bucolic childhood of, you know, being super, super poor, but enjoying canned goods and going to dances. The Kingstons would sponsor dances at the city farm property that it rented from the city. And sometimes Lorraine's father makes, would make lemonade, which everyone appreciated, but they felt like lemonade was extravagant. Lorraine would remember that at Thanksgiving every year, the co-op would rent four large tents at Clyde Gustafsson's property and hold a big potluck dinner. One year, Eldon's mother, who they called Sister Vesta, secreted away some chocolate pies from the potluck and hoarded them into her house. And Lorraine remembers this because Sister Vesta was nice enough to give a slice of the chocolate pie to all of the children. At the age of 10, Lorraine's mother, Blenda, starts preparing her daughter for polygamy. And I, I found this a fascinating uh, example. So this idea in the communal order is going, you're going to see shifted in sort of some dark ways later on. But there's this idea that you need to break a child's will because they have to learn to share. Because this is the higher order. So Blenda starts preparing Lorraine at age 10. She would ask her questions like, Lorraine, what would it feel like if your husband was playing in the other room over there with his wife? How would you feel? And Lorraine would have to work through that. She was also warned to keep it very private. Her mother would say, quote, Even if an angel appears and asks you if you are a plural wife, you are to deny it. So right from the beginning, there's these cultural imperatives given to children to sort of prepare them. And it's not unlike... You know, some of the stuff that we talk about within Mormonism, I remember being taught as a child that if someone came, even an angel came and asked me to deny the gospel, I was not going to do it. Of course, they would call everyone brother and sister. So, Brother Eldon would die in 1948 at only 39 years old. He had cancer of the penis, and his followers tried to burn the cancer away with acid, but to no avail. Now, this sort of ritualistic healing is, um, and herbal healing, not medicinal, is sort of a standard of fundamentalism. It's, and it's not, it's more an idea of purity and simplicity than it is about anything else. And of course, Rulon Alred of the AUB was a natural healer, a chiropractor in Murray, Utah. And he would have associations with this group. After Brother Eldon dies, the group holds a three-day vigil around Eldon's body, and they keep the room illuminated with candles. They fully expected him to resurrect. When it doesn't happen, they take him to a mortuary and they have him buried in the Bountiful City Cemetery. Upon Eldon's death, Charles Kingston designates his son, John Ortel Kingston, as the leader of the Kingston group. So now we're going to call John Ortel, we're going to call him Ortel so you can keep track of this. Charles W. Kingston would die later in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ortel Kingston becomes the second leader of the co-op. 
Ortel was interesting. He was in his early 20s, and he was 12 years older than Laureen at the time. Laureen remembers playing marbles with him, and she says he was really quiet and shy. He got along with the girls more than he got along with the boys, and um, sort of seemed awkward. Ortel would not marry his first wife until he was around 30 years old, shortly after his father, Charles Kingston's death. And Ortel sort of formally, you know, establishes the Latter-day Church of Christ to be more of a sustained organization. Children in the group are taught that they shouldn't kiss until their wedding day. According to the book The Midwife by Vicki Burgess, women were expected to marry at a young age, but no age was too old for a man. There's also sort of this double standard. Women could not, cannot marry outside the co-op, but men can find plural wives outside of the co-op. If a girl marries outside the co-op, she will be shunned by her family and excluded by the co-op. Marriages have to be approved in advance by the leader. And the leader, at this point, when Ortel steps in, starts to become a prophet. And I'm going to go back and talk about how this shift happens. Eldon is starting to take on this prophetic mantle, even though the group was not supposed to be a religious organization. So marriages have to be approved by this council and then rubber stamped by the leader. If a young woman marries an outsider, which the leader would never approve, it's sort of considered considered the pinnacle of disobedience. Teenagers, like LDS teenagers, are told to avoid temptation by never being alone with opposite sex, and they're instead encouraged to do group activities. And Laureen remembers doing these group activities with fondness. This is, these are good memories she has. Meanwhile, adult members were asked to commit to the following, quote, It is my firm resolve and fixed purpose to give my all to the Lord, my time, my talents, and all I am or expect to be for building up the kingdom of God, end quote. This was also taught to the children to recite in Sunday devotionals. They were known as memory gems. And similarly, at the time, the LDS Church had what they called sacrament gems. So it's sort of the shared language that's going on. Eldon and Ortel were considered prophets, and Charles, before his death, Charles Kingston, he would give co-op members patriarchal blessings. So they're sort of mirroring this Joseph Smith tradition where Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram are sort of running things, and their father is the patriarch of the church. We see this enacted as well in the LeBaron group. At this time, Laureen would babysit to earn money, and she would dutifully turn over her income to the co-op. So let me tell you how this works. I mentioned it was sort of like the West Virginia miners. Uh, it's similar to this. So they would have a bookkeeper's office that was at 17th South and 9th East. And at the time, it was Artis Kingston, who was the sister to Ortel and Eldon. She was the bookkeeper, and she accepted and accounted people's money. She was also the plural wife of Clyde Gustafson, one of the leaders of the co-op. She would keep her maiden name Kingston as a way to conceal her polygamous relationship. Now, if you read Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book, he talks about this. Members of the co-op are often changing their names to blend in with society. When Artis was running the bookkeeper's office, it was a little less so because they were more isolated, but now... Uh, Kingston members are all throughout Salt Lake and Murray and West Jordan and South Jordan and Davis County, and they're expected to blend in. So they change their names to common last names. So you, 
If you went to school there, it is very likely that you went to school with a Kingston. Like other members of the co-op, Lorraine would give her babysitting money and her earnings to artists, and she would tell her what her expenses would be. So she would go to the bookkeeper's office, turn in her babysitting money, and then say, I need $5 for my lunch this week. Artists would allow that amount to be given to her if she saw that the balance in Lorraine's account was positive, and there was this explicit agreement that Lorraine would have to make more money um, she would have to be making more money than she was withdrawing. All members, and this is still happening today, are expected to meet with the bookkeeper once a month to account for and defend how they spend their money. And at this time, when Lorraine was doing it, they still had some discretion over accounts, um, but they still had to justify their expenses at the end of the month. But if you are to believe some of the stories of people that have left the Kingston Group, this is one of the things that is very troubling to them as they're trying to get integrated into regular society. Kingston disaffected members do not know how to handle money. And in fact, there are stories at local banks here where, uh, you know, people that leave the group panic when they go to the bank the first time after earning a paycheck because they don't know what to do. And there's a story of a, of a young man that, uh, worked on his first paycheck, and when he went to go cash it, he felt like he had to say, I need to buy this, I need to buy this, and I need to buy this. And the banker just looked at him and said, okay, it's your money. And so some of the, the members that have left the group, what they do when they have their first paycheck is go to the bank and say, I've just left the Kingston group, will you help me? Because this has become such an important part of their culture. It's really hard for them to deal with. And there's also a story in Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book about um, someone that would go in and say, I need $30 for my daughter's birthday. And the bookkeeper would say, that's too much. You need to make due on 15. And so you would have to make due on 15, regardless of how much you earned. Lorraine was the first in the Kingston group to graduate from high school. She graduated at East High at 16 years old in, 18, in 1948. And she was 16 at the time because during the war, there was a teacher shortage and the district canceled the eighth grade. Many members ironically judged Lorraine for graduating. They thought she should instead be working and bring more money to the co-op or she should be getting married. Again, girls are encouraged to get married very young in this group. While still in high school, Lorraine would go on a few dates with her older childhood friend, Ortel Kingston, who is now going to be running this group in, in a few years from this. Ortel was nice to her, but Lorraine recalls with rage every time she talks about it that there was one time that Ortel never really wanted to take her anywhere. He would want to take her to park. And of course, it's forbidden to kiss except for on your wedding night. And one time he pulls Lorraine onto his lap and he kisses her, and then he says, Now see what you made me do. And she was furious, and she demanded that he take her home, and she wanted to avoid him after that. Ortel married LaDonna Peterson in 1941. She would be the first of about 25 wives Ortel would marry. Let's back up, though, to Eldon. Eldon began teaching that the Kingston family were direct descendants of Jesus Christ. This is an important Kingston doctrine because, and, and we see this in Mormonism. I've heard rumors that some of the general authorities perpetuate this to, 
you know, their family members. It's an odd part of folk Mormonism that still exists, and it has its roots in sort of biblical teachings. Eldon Kingston was big into this doctrine. He wanted everything to be like Christ, and he could claim that he could trace his lineage back to Jesus Christ directly. Anyone that had Kingston blood was considered extremely special. And this would make having a child with a Kingston especially desirable because it meant that your children could be directly, physically related to Jesus Christ himself. Kingston taught his followers that they could be literal descendants of Jesus Christ if they were married to him in some way. He taught that Jesus came down to earth and wanted to create a race of chosen people. He also preached a bizarre extrapolation of the Book of Mormon called the White Horse Prophecy, which you can look up. This is sort of this idea that the Constitution will hang by its thread. It's been historically debunked to be related to Joseph Smith, but a lot of very conservative LDS members are huge into the White Horse Prophecy, so you can look it up. But basically, it's a dreaded prediction of the cataclysmic time when the, quote, black race will rise up and attempt to destroy the white men, only to be thwarted by Native Americans riding to the rescue. So remember, fundamentalism, Mormon theology, is inherently racist. It's still in the Book of Mormon. It's not something that can be repudiated unless the scriptures change. The LDS Church is trying to cope with this. They're trying to soften the language. But this is something that is very much still present in fundamentalism and lingering in LDS Mormonism today. Those in the order Eldon would preach are were responsible for building the master race. This is why all marriages would have to be arranged within the original four families that start the group. So, Eldon is considered a prophet in this, and Ortel would be too, even though he had less interest in girls. As Ortel grows in leadership, he would become less collaborative. He would stop working less and less with the committee of the co-op and become reportedly more autocratic. He became, he really began to encourage to his followers that he was infallible. Now remember, if you're claiming that Jesus Christ's blood is running through your body, it's very, it's very easy to convince people that also believe that, that you have some sort of holiness to you. Mean, in the meantime, Lorraine was very interested in medicine. She began working as a nurse's aide at St. Mark's Hospital, and so, as tradition, she would consult Brother Ortel about becoming a licensed practical nurse or an LPN. He told her that her education would damage her faith, and he warned of secularization of school. But he told her to do what she felt was right. They believed in free agency, and so she was given the agency to choose. Laureen excelled, and by age 21, she was a head nurse in orthopedic surgery, surgery at the LDS Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. As an LPN, she wanted to continue her education and become a registered nurse, but she was conflicted. She was having a lot of pressure to not be selfish. She was 21. A lot of her friends her age were married a long time ago. So she decided to, she, she actually got a scholarship, offered a scholarship by the hospital, and she decides to turn it down and get married instead. 
She was skeptical of polygamy, but not really outwardly so. Her parents were monogamous, and her dad was especially skeptical of the doctrine, and she had seen the negatives of plural marriages in her life. So when Leon Kingston, who was the oldest son of Eldon, proposed to her in 1953, she felt good about this. He was uh, kind and smart, and she was attracted to him, and they, they sort of have this beautiful little romance story. Um, he was the first Kingston to graduate from college, and he was, a plan- he was planning to attend law school. And so, you know, she grappled with this, do I take the scholarship or do I put my husband through law school? And, of course, uh, Leon's schooling ruled out. Lorraine would say that, you know, at work she avoided men for fear of falling in love and having to be shunned from the group. She was even proposed to, allegedly, by Rulon Allred by way of his one of his wives. They asked her to enter the AUB. Lorraine would have connections with Rulon and admired him as a healer, even though she sort of took a more scientific approach to medicine than Rulon. She also received another proposal from Brother Ortel. One of his wives told him that she might think about marrying him, but she didn't. She loved Leon, and that's who she married. This would have some negative effects on Leon as well. Young people at the time were taught that with direction from a higher source, they would find their perfect mate. And so although the prophet would arrange the marriages, um, couples were told that even if they weren't attracted, if the prophet told them that this was going to be their spouse, this was the one they were designed to be with for all eternity. That's a powerful, seductive doctrine. Lorraine marries Leon, and they honeymoon in Yellowstone, and they have this sort of idyllic marriage for a while. They had trouble having children, even though they weren't using birth control. Interestingly enough, in 1958, Lorraine is visited by Ervil LeBaron. Remember, if you haven't listened to the LeBaron podcast, I would highly recommend you do that. LeBaron at the time was the second in command at the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times, and he was trying to get them to leave the co-op and join his church. He was trying to tell them that they needed a lawyer in the church and they needed um, a nurse and how great they would be. But Lorraine just remembers being frightened by Ervil, and she said he wore this big furry coat in her house even though it was summer. And so they got rid of him by turning up the thermostat until he was sweating and had to leave. Now, the LDS Church had assisted the federal government in 1953 in the sort of spying ring that led to the 1953 raid in Short Creek, which we have also talked about in an episode. In April of 1959, the LDS Church encourages an investigation into the Davis County Cooperative Society. They also do this into the other groups, but they get really uncomfortable with the popularity of the Davis County Cooperative Society. These people are really good at integrating. Uh, they would present themselves as Mormon. Laureen would tell her schoolmates that she was Mormon, but uh, that they always had to visit family when it was time for church. So the LDS Church encourages the government to investigate, and they do an investigation. And Leon, having his degree, is asked to represent the co-op members. Leon does well in his representation, but Ortel has an axe to grind. It could have to do with the fact that Leon is married to someone that Ortel wants to be married to, but it could also be the fact that Leon is not charismatic. He's more quiet and reserved. And Ortel wants really someone who's a bulldog for the community. So 
Ortel does not appoint Leon to become the official family attorney, and this leaves Leon feeling very depressed and rejected. Eventually, Leon marries Lorraine's younger sister, Rowena, in 1960. And in many fundamentalist sects, um, the weddings are similar. So they're held in homes in the evenings. And in the Kingston group, the elders of the church will visit. Just like if LDS members have a baby blessing in your home, the elders will come and visit and perform the ordinance. Um, and they will sometimes do this power play like they did in this particular wedding where they would they would invite all the guests and you would have a cake and all this fancy stuff. And the elders would come into the home and say, something is not right here. We need to cancel the wedding. And so all the, you know, the cake is wasted and all the guests came there for nothing. And then a few days later, they'll allow the wedding to happen. And this happened in uh, the case of Leon's marriage to Rowena. Rowena would get married and change her name to Erickson, her last name to Erickson, to indicate that she was married. So people that she knew around her would know she was married. But not know that she was married to her sister's husband. The name Erickson was made to sound like her maiden name, Ekstrom. Lorraine starts to become interested in midwifery. And she really takes this as a passion. She's staying home. She has had to put her career on hold, but she is able to help with the births of members of the co-op. At one point, she helps a woman named Lara. And as Vicki Burgess puts it, quote, with another mother, Lara, there was a different kind of detachment whereby the mother did not seem to care what was happening. The inexperienced midwife was unaware at the time, but would realize later that her client was experiencing flashbacks to sexual abuse. One day, Lara called to say she was going to kill herself. Rowena had been recently certified as a hypnotherapist and offered to hypnotize Lara. When they did so, both Rowena and Lorraine learned that Lara had suffered from massive history of sexual violence. This began a long collaboration between Lorraine and Rowena in helping fundamentalist women in need of protection, end quote. Now, this becomes a changing point in Rowena's life and in Lorraine's life. Meeting this woman, realizing she's a victim of sexual abuse, becomes a problem. In fundamentalist communities, because you are so suspicious of the government, because you are so suspicious of law enforcement, when there is crime happening, it is compounded because you have no mechanism. You have no outlet to report because you can't go and report it to the government. You can't go and report it to law enforcement. It really creates this real sick soup of abuse. You can go to your leadership, but more often than, than not, the leadership will be afraid of getting law enforcement involved, so they will tell you to deal with it in your own way privately. Rowena would struggle at first with plural marriage, but having children made her feel less lonely. But she would have an activist heart, and this incident with Lara causes Rowena to become later on in life, a radicalized, outspoken critic of the wrongs happening in community. In the community, She never tries to criticize polygamy. She tries to criticize the angle of which polygamists had no outlet to report. Regardless, the co-op saw this as a betrayal of trust. Rowena would form the group Tapestry Against Polygamy with Vicki Prunty, and that group has now been disbanded, and maybe if, when we talk about Namelka, we can talk about Vicky Prunty and why that happened. But Tapestry was originally organized to collect, you know, 
threads of women's stories about living in plural marriages, and they believe that if you had enough threads, different kinds of threads, those would weave the overall story of what polygamy was really like. The group chastised fundamentalists for not promoting healthy partnerships between men and women and criticized Utah for taking a hands-off approach to polygamy. Again, this group was not initially set up to criticize polygamy necessarily, but pushed back on the abuses within the polygamous groups that weren't being accounted for. In May of 1991, Rowena outlined several objections to the co-op's policies and sends, sends this in a letter to Brother Ortel and Sister Artis. The letter criticized the inequity between members and it outlined other abuses. As a result, she was excommunicated from the co-op on April 1st, 1992. It's so interesting because Rowena's time in, in 1992 is very similar to the September 6th excommunications in 1993. It's just interesting that this sort of movement is happening in both of these groups. Ortel at the time had died five years earlier, and now Ortel had passed his leadership on to his son, Paul, and Paul Kingston was running the co-op. Now, Ortel had taught the community to do something that would give all fundamentalists a bad name. It was this idea of, quote, bleeding the beast. It was sort of this government scheme on how to, you know, take take advantage of the government and get on welfare. And it's interesting if you, uh, I think that there's this, this really quirky documentary called The Wild Whites of West Virginia, and it talks about groups that had also grown up in sort of this West Virginian mining company. And now they're, you know, they're running similar schemes in West Virginia living off the government. Well, we, there are many, many accusations of the Kingstons doing this, bleeding the beast, taking the money from the government. They would allegedly trek into state welfare offices and they're bring their kids and they would claim that they had no idea who the father of their children was, that he was a truck driver that had left them and, and left them destitute. And this becomes exposed in the 1980s when the group was forced to pay a $350,000 settlement for swindling the government through welfare fraud. Later, the order reportedly bought slot machines from mob-controlled companies. To hide the scope of the organization, John Ortel would take great pains to never show his wealth and taught his followers to do the same. He used to brag that he had worn the same black shirt every day for a year. He also shared his brother's fascination with herbs and natural medicine, and he becomes particularly obsessed with a plant called comfrey, which he believed would protect his clan from his group from the nuclear war, which would usher in the apocalypse. So they start to take the word of wisdom in a separate way. They, they um, abhor sugar. Sugar is not allowed, um, but this comfrey plant is made into a great uh, drink with, I believe, parsley, and they blend it down, and it's called green drink. And he mandates that children should drink this tea brewed from the herb every morning and that the order members should feed it to their cows. And this is going to protect them from the radiation of the nuclear holocaust in the apocalypse. Now, that might sound nuts, but I actually grew up with LDS members that had a very similar view of the earth will be cleansed with fire and this idea of the nuclear holocaust. So when I heard this, I was like, oh yeah, I could see how they could believe that. 
Ortel, before he died, had some 80 children by 13 wives, but his favorite child was Paul. Paul was an excellent student and made friends very easily. He was the favored son. And so he had freedom to sort of disregard the strict discipline that his father had imposed on other members of the order. One day for laughs, it said that he and his half-brother, Ron Tucker, stole some napalm from an order army supply store, drew lines of it in the street, and lit it on fire as cars drove by. The boys also bought cigarettes wholesale through a small group-owned market run by their older brother and sold them at school. In an interview with Rolling Stones, Stones magazine, this is what was said about it, quote, It was all just innocent teenage stuff, recalls Ron, who had since left the group. But within the order where drinking soda pop was against the rules, it was a pretty big deal. When Paul turned 21, he married Rishon Dye. Unlike other girls in the order, Rishon was refined. She didn't wear hand-me-downs, and at group dances, a long line of boys waited to dance with her. She was definitely the pick of the litter, and that's why Paul got her, Ron recalls. Paul already had two wives, but he and Rishon were married in a secret ceremony at her parents' house. John Ortel presided while Rashawn's father officiated the wedding, promising the bride that if she obeyed her husband, she would be guaranteed a spot in the celestial kingdom, the highest level of heaven. After the wedding, Rashawn chose a name Knight, randomly, a practice designed to prevent prosecutors from proving that men in the order have multiple wives. They seem very happy, Ron says. I could tell she loved him, and it seemed like he loved her too. Within a year, Paul Kingston would take a fourth wife. By the time he was 30, he would have more than 10. I have a link to the Rolling Stones article that has a fascinating look at this, and you can go ahead and read that as well. Meanwhile, back to Lorraine, her husband, Leon, was called into the co-op board of directors, and they're forced to account for Rowena's behavior. The board decides that Lorraine and Leon need to divorce Rowena. They are shocked by this. They love her. They both love her dearly, and they felt like the vows that they took were sacred. For Rowena's part, even though she was starting to radically oppose polygamy, she was still participating in a polygamous marriage. She was saying that she didn't want to leave polygamy necessarily, but the secrecy and the practices of the order were actually having an, an effect on her physical body. Um, she did developed ulcerated colditis, and she was saying she wasn't trying to go against the co-op, but just trying to improve the quality of her own life. The board put pressure on Leon. He had to risk, he had to be responsible for her behavior. They decided not to excommunicate Leon and Lorraine, but they said that as long as they remained in contact with Rowena, they were banned from attending Sunday services. So even though they weren't officially excommunicated, they were in effect excommunicated. They could still attend weddings and dinners. This is sort of like LDS being banned from the temple, but maybe still being able to go to a baptism. Even still, they continued to work for the co-op and contribute to the co-op fund. In 1994, Rowena announces to the family that she would no longer be living in plural marriage. The family is shocked, but they figured out a way to amicably separate. So even it's said that even today that they maintain their relationship somehow. Rowena began to see that polygamy was designed for men and felt like it was, quote, an unhealthy addiction. Rowena's activism also forced Lorraine and Leon to think the way that they saw their community. For example, there were some practices that if you'd grown up in them, they seemed completely normal. But 
Rohingya's activism called them into question. The co-op supported what was called the Apache Death Grip. This is where adults would try and break a child's will. Now, remember we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, but the idea that children should not be strong-willed, that they their will needs to be broken as a way to prepare them for the order. So when the child disobeyed, the Apache death grip was a sort of uh, culturized method of abuse in, in the order where adults would place their hand over the child's nose and mouth so that it could not breathe. I'm going to detail some more of the abuse in a minute. But there were other practices that were really hard to, to deal with. Connie Rugg, who is a former member, stated, quote, The men in the Kingston group do little or nothing to support their many wives and children. Sometimes wives will, quote, go gardening, which was basically scrounging through garbage cans to find food for themselves and their children, end quote. Before we talk about the systemic abuse, we need to talk about the group. In 2006, it was estimated that Paul Kingston had up to 27 wives, including three half-sisters of his, some of whom have up to eight children. Now I'm going to give you some research from Brian Hells to kind of lead you through this. This is from Brian Hills, quote, Upon Ortel's death in 1987, leadership passed to a son, Paul Eldon Kingston. Paul continued to follow his father's ideas regarding the intra-family marriages. Daughters of men in the co-op would be married off at a young ages. Luann Kingston, a former member of the clan, who in 1995 at age 15 was forced to marry her first cousin, shared, quote, The joke used to be that if you weren't married by 17, you were an old maid. Some want to be married, some had to be. Girls are always trying to please. All they know is how to do what they've been told. End quote. Jason Ortel Kingston, who was a full brother to Paul Eldon Kingston, married his half-sister, Andrea Johnson, who became pregnant in 1992. It, is, it appears that she suffered from preeclampsia or toxemia, which progressed to full-life-threatening eclampsia before she was brought in for medical care. A C-section was performed to save the baby, but Johnson died. State officials believe that obstetrical care was withheld because of the fear that their incestuous relationship would be discovered. More recently, 15-year-old Mary Ann Kingston was forced by her father, John Daniel Kingston, who is another full brother to Paul Eldon Kingston, and we're going to talk about him in a minute. She was forced to marry her uncle, David Ortel Kingston, also a full brother. Escaping the marriage by running away, she was apprehended by her father, who took her to an Idaho farm that if you drive anywhere from Salt Lake to, like, Idaho Falls, you'll pass this farm. It's a Washakie Stables, and it's a red barn. It shows a big bull ping on the sign. Her father takes her there. He takes her, chains her up, and beats her for a full day. He pled no contest to the charge of child abuse and served seven months in jail. For his part, uncle and cousin David Kingston was convicted in July of 1999 of incest and unlawful sexual conduct, landing a full prison term. In August of 2003, Mary Ann filed a $110 million lawsuit against members of the Kingston clan alleging sexual abuse of child, seduction, assault, battery, false imprisonment, emotional distress, negligence, and sham marriage. The Kingstons countersued for defamation, and it appears this lawsuit will not go to trial for years, according to Brian Hills. Another scandal touching the Kingstons involved Jeremy Ortel Kingston, the nephew of Paul E. Kingston. He was convicted for his incestuous marriage to 15-year-old Luann Kingston, who was his first cousin as well as his aunt. 
I want you to think about that for a minute. It's his first cousin as well as his aunt, his mother's sister's daughter. You know, Sanjay Bhattacharya talks about this family tree being more of like, I think he calls it like a family wreath or bush. It's The branches are all tangled. You can have someone be your wife, your cousin, and your aunt, just like this case. This case came to light in May of 2000 as Luann tried to leave the group with her two daughters. John Daniel Kingston is someone we're going to talk about. He he can be described as nothing short as a monster. Uh, he was again in the spotlight in 2003 when 10 of his children with wife Heidi Mattingly Foster were taken into state custody. And you can look this up. If you Google John Daniel Kingston, you'll see multiple articles on him. He was on the news a bunch along with Heidi Mattingly Foster. In October of that year, Judge Andrew Valdez placed a court order separation between the children and their parents. This would cause a lot of other abuse. A lot of these kids were abused in foster care. It's very, very sad. Attorneys for the children in the Guardian ad litem office claim that Kingston and Heidi Mattingly Foster had engaged in a decade-long pattern of physical abuse and neglect of their children. And I'll talk about some of that in just a minute. In May of 2004, a hearing was held, and attorney Kristen Brewer, who was the director of the Guardian's ad litem's office, spent much of her time trying to connect the Kingstons to other women who had borne his children and had been investigated by the Division of Child and Family Services. She began by asking Kingston to provide the names of his offspring with Mattingly Foster, whom DCFS had investigated four times during the past decade. Kingston came up about five came up with about five names before faltering, saying he was very nervous. After viewing a list of children, he then attempted to name them, but once more fell short prompting Judge Andrew Valdez to supply the final child's name for him. So he goes to court, they say, name your children, and he can't even name all of his children. The judge has to help him. Kingston was only able to name nine of his 13 children by a second woman, Rachel Ann Kingston. Sounds like I left a few out, he said, after Brewer reminded him how many children are in that family. John Daniel Kingston was was sort of this media villain. Several evidences, like John Daniel Kingston's inability to remember his children's names, suggest that the Kingston group believed that the primary purpose of plural marriage, according to Brian Hales, is allow a man to accrue as many wives and children as possible with little responsibility beyond siring and presiding. LDS scripture teach that being a husband and father entails specific duties, even great things. DNC 2948. In December of 2005, Judge Elizabeth Lindsley lifted the court ordered separation between Mattingly Foster and her children. She was separated. You can, you can, um, hear her go on the news. She talks about this. She cries. She weeps on the news about being separated. However, she kept in place a no-contact order between Kingston and the couple's children. So Kingston was not allowed to see his children. And the stories of abuse are so horrific that, again, I'm going to talk about some of them, but I'm not going to talk about these specifically because they're documented. I've included some links. If you're interested in knowing more, you can read about this. You can click on the links and see how DCFS reports that these children handled being with their father, and it is nothing short of horrific and tragic. I mean, horrific. 
In 2003, it was estimated that the Kingston Fundamentalists included 1,200 to 2,000 members. But this number is probably really low. This group is particularly gifted at hiding in plain sight. For example, for example, three years later, it was estimated that Paul Kingston, who was a group leader in 2003, had up to 40 wives. Each wife is encouraged to have a baby a year. And there's this interview with a kid that left the group for being gay. And he and I've also linked to that. And you can read the interview. But he said his mom is still active and participating in this group. Her father said, you know what we do to cows that don't have children anymore? We shoot them. And this is kind of the idea. So, um, you know, this number of 2,000 could be really, really low. Nursing newborns is discouraged because it's said to diminish the likelihood of conception. Some of Paul Kingston's uh, wives have up to 16 children each. With these numbers, it's possible that Paul alone has over 300 offspring. So you can understand why when John Daniel Kingston goes to court, it's hard for him to remember all the names of his children. His brothers, Paul's brothers, have prominent positions within the co-op and have dozens of wives and hundreds of children themselves. Now, I want to talk about the abuse a little bit because when we say abuse, abuse means something different to everyone. And I've really, really grappled with this. So I'm going to tell some terrible stories, but they are some of the milder stories. I'm not going to talk about the sexual abuse. I, I don't feel like that is my story to tell. It is well documented. You can find it if you want to Google. But I, I am going to tell some because I want you to get an idea of what these ideas, this, this idea of cooperation and this cooperative has turned into. Now, it's also important to juxtapose it with Laureen's story. She has a story, of course, she grew up in a monogamous family, but it wasn't perfect and there were, were abuses. But for the most part, she had this sort of Mormon spirit of working hard and you know, eating canned goods and sharing and, and, uh, yet someone next door to her could be experiencing horrific systemic abuse. And I think that that is something interesting to note because none of us are exempt from that. Um, this is how abuse happens, right? This is why we have such seedy things like child pornography rings. They exist because there is a seedy underbelly of all these communities, including our own, and none of us are exempt from this. So I want you to juxtapose Laureen's story with some of the clan's systemic abuse. And I say systemic because there is a cultural condoning of these practices. John Daniel Kingston, in my opinion, is a monster. But he is he is allowed access to so many children that you cannot say that the Kingston group is not responsible for this. They know about this abuse. It is wildly public. And yet these men are allowed access to so many children. And in fact, it's encouraged. For example, some of the Kingston leaders believe that babies shouldn't cry. And so to quiet crying babies, they would slap the baby over and over and over until the baby stopped crying. One 13-year-old child of John Daniel Kingston claims that the children were once forced to eat rancid food until they threw up, and when they threw it up, they were forced to eat and drink the vomit. Daniel Kingston has 
been accused of reportedly kidnapping two boys at gunpoint, and he let them out to the Great Salt Lake, and the charges were later dropped. It's said at the Washaki stables that I talked about on the way up to Idaho. He used to, he would force his children and other children in the group to decapitate cows with chainsaws to toughen these kids up. This is important to understand. These, these are the ways the kids are growing up. They're, they're growing up under the psychopath's leadership, the sociopath who is teaching young, young children to chainsaw off a cow's head. It's wildly upsetting. Daniel Kingston sometimes beat children for some other infraction in the orders, in the orders rules, like forgetting to face the home place three times a day and pray. I mean, they were beaten for anything. The order, um, runs what prosecutors believe is one of the largest organized crime operations in Utah. They have so many holdings and it's said to be this far flung empire, um, with a bunch of locations and backrooms. On the surface, the operation seems legit. From Salt Lake City, the order controls over a hundred businesses spread out through the western United States. They have casinos and cattle ranches in California and Nevada, and they have a factory that makes lifelike dolls in Utah. For over 75 years, the Kingstons have amassed a fortune estimated over $300 million. But the operation is so savvy and so lawyered up at this point that they can avoid, they can sort of skirt the edges of the law. According to people who have left the order, the, the group ex- exploits its members into virtual slave labor. It's back to this West Virginia Virginian mining society. Uh, there are stories, anyone that has worked at the mines have really horrific stories to tell. Sanjeev talks about this in his book, but it's also documented online. You can read about this. And there are some cases of fraud where Mexican miners have, have charged the group of inhumane working conditions. And it's interesting to note that when you are reading about these Mexican workers' abuses that they are suffering, you need to remember that at least they are getting paid. The Kingston boys that are forced to work in these coal mines, and I think their biggest coal mine is now shut down, but they were forced to do that, and they were not allowed to keep any of their funds, and they had to do this horrific work. The children born into the group make up much of the labor force. Uh, lots of the girls, who are mostly teen brides, answer phones at the order's law office. They bag groceries at the supermarkets they own or tend to the group's many children. They do a lot of the babysitting. Boys are working in the coal mines. They stack boxes at Standard Restaurant Supply, or which is a massive discount store. These people, remember, are not paid cash but in script. And it's supposed to be this old credit use that the Mormon pioneers used to be able to redeem at company stores. The group teaches, quote, if the order doesn't have it, we don't need it. That's a very Brigham Young idea, remember, when he was trying to isolate the group from outsiders. The the male membership still is designated by numbers, like brother one, brother number two, brother number three, etc. And the children are numbered thusly. If the numbered man is 47, his first wife is 471. And the first male child is 4711, and the first female child is 4712. The second wife's child would be 4721, 4722, 4723, and so on. 
with girls having even numbers and boys having odds. It's not clear even to members why the people are numbered this way. It's been rumored that the first leader mentioned that the numbering system was for the purpose of maintaining the order on the chance that the new leader could not be elected. Therefore, a man that is numbered is considered to have leadership qualities and should be respected. There does not seem to be any hierarchy or other significance in the numbering system, but I could be wrong about that. I'm not familiar with all the nuances. Charles W. Kingston, the group founder, taught, quote, that every individual, no matter what authority, standing or station he is, is responsible to the one above him in exactly the same way as if that individual was the Savior himself. We must look at the one above us in the same light as we look at the Savior, end quote. And this doctrine is called the law of one above another, and it really enforces this hierarchy. The church members do believe that every child is priceless and sort of puts a strong emphasis on family values, education, and self-sufficiency. They do allow their children to go to public schools and to receive college educations. And so if you grow up in Utah, there's a likelihood that you have gone to school with one of these kids. Uh, the, the children are taught from a young age to say that their fathers are truck drivers or um, in the army. So uh, you could have a single mother in your ward that you're, that's sort of inactive, and this could be a member of the group. The church recently established a private school, and a lot of the children now attend that school. But they still are integrated into society. There's a story of a little boy named Stephen who left the group, and uh, he he is, I think, I think he is documented in the Rolling Stones article. He has a fascinating uh, take on this. When Stephen was a boy, the group would gather for New Year's in a warehouse in the city for the annual ritual, the numbering of the men. His father stood on the stage and would call out the names of the men who were to receive one of the group's highest honors, Brother Ron Tucker. He would intone, come and get your number. According to the order's interpretation of the Book of Revelation, only 144,000 numbered men will be allowed to rule in heaven under God. Many of these men are also given stewardship of the order's business holdings, set out to run the group's coal mines or ranches or to oversee the storefronts. So Stephen's father was set on top of this um, organization, and this is what Stephen grew up into. For a long time, he didn't even know who his father was. His father was Paul Kingston, the leader. His mother once took him to a gym, and he saw a man lifting weights. It was an intense man lifting weights, and the mother said, That's your Uncle Paul. Back then, Paul Kingston stood around 5 feet 10 10 and weighed about 200 pounds. He hadn't lost his hair yet. And thanks to his fanatical devotion to healthy food and alternative medicine, he was a well-toned, athletic-looking man. He would eventually have around 300 children, but, you know, Stephen, his son, remembers that he was just in awe of this good-looking man. He remembers that the man looked like him. They had the same high cheekbones, the same pale skin, the same wide-set eyes. The man put the barbells down and came over to Stephen, and he asked him, Stephen, are you being obedient? And Stephen said yes. And Stephen just remembers that he seemed like the most amazing guy. It would be several years before Stephen learned that Paul Kingston was his father. He didn't even realize that this 
that his mother was the wife to this man. And Stephen gets himself into trouble later on. You can read his story on the articles that I've linked. But basically, the group is amassing money. Uh, it's said that they have, like, you know, almost like this pirate treasure in the basements of some of their homes. Because even the leaders live really poor, so they say. Uh, their businesses are kind of run down and poor. But it's said that they have these trunks of gold coins. And Stephen gets caught up in the scandal of trying to steal it. Stephen denies ever stealing. But he did steal some things from his father later on. Stephen grew up on a cattle ranch, that cattle ranch I told you about, called Washaki, which is near the Idaho border. And um, the land had once belonged to the home of Washaki Indians. And as children, Stephen and his 15 full brothers and sisters played on the windswept ruins of a Native American cemetery. Their father rarely came by because the nearest town was 18 miles away. And these kids forged a fierce bond between themselves. Stephen would say, quote, We were off on our own out there and really close. It felt like it was us against the world. End quote. His older brother Richard uh, was a burly diesel mechanic and, would, and taught him how to fix cars. And another ben, brother, Ben, showed him how to fix fences. In the summer, they swam in the reservoir as their mother, Rashawn, watched the boys doing backflips off the rope swing into the water, and the sun would set, you know, behind the mountains at night, and they loved it. Uh, Stephen said it was fun. We would we would sleep on the chicken coops in the summer and shoot raccoons, or we'd set traps and raise them as pets. So it was it was interesting because it was sort of this child's playground, but it also doubled as a work camp for disobedient group wives and rebellious kids. Anytime someone acted out, they were sent up there to work. Um, they believed that hard labor would make the girls more supplicant to their husbands back in the city. Scott Cosgrove, who is a former detective with the Box Elder County Sheriff's Office, remembers the ranch as sort of a broken-down building, being a wild place guarded by a feral pack of boys who patrolled the fence line from the back of a pickup armed with shotguns. He said, quote, the clan kids from there would come to school not properly dressed for, for the cold, and they were always getting into fights. You'd show up for a welfare call or a domestic abuse call, and it was just really run down, end quote. Stephen said the highlight of his, of his experience came on Sundays when he and the other kids on the ranch traveled the hour and a half to Salt Lake City for church. Sometimes his father would read the Book of Mormon from the pulpit and talk about things that regular Christian people would recognize, like tithing or repentance. But mostly they talked about the history of the order and their ancestors and the men who started the group. That is not unlike LDS Church, right? We talk a little bit about Christian values, but not much. We usually like to talk about our own scriptures and our own history. Eldon sort of lives on this mythologized, uh, the one mighty and strong, just like the LeBarons were talking about, with, quote, holding the scepter of power in his hand and to set in order the house of God. And, of course, Eldon's prophetic views, his dogmatic views of the word of wisdom, um, his fasting helped him provoke visions, and this becomes this sort of prophetic um, role model that people, kids like Stephen were taught to grow up with. It's said that one of the, the strange, Stephen claims that one of the strangest beliefs that Eldon had, uh, was that when one of his favorite wives died, Eldon missed her so much that he dug her up from the grave. He then severed her index finger, cleaned off three bones, and carried them with him the rest of his life, 
believing that there was a totem spirit in them. So it's I would recommend le- reading the Rolling Stones article. It's it's very fascinating. And I just want to say a little bit more about the intra-family marriages. This has been one of the most controversial bits. Sanjeev said, you know, he studied a lot about the incest because it's really concerning hearing people marrying their half-sisters. Geneticists have been talking about the Kingston group for a while. There are rumors of, I think Sanjeev calls it a tomato baby, you know, babies being born that are so disabled, so disfigured from all of this intermarrying that uh, they look like little tomato blobs of skin and that they buried the family, allegedly buries them in the backyard without reporting them. Again, the this all has to do with the bloodline, the Kingston bloodline, which we talked about. Connie Rugg, remember one of the formerly, formerly one of Ortel's plural wife, stated, quote, Ortel Kingston experimented with inbreeding his cattle and then he turned to his children. So I'm just going to tell you some of the examples of the children. Um... Jason Ortel Kingston marries his half-sister, Andrea, which we talked about. Jeremy Ortel Kingston um, married his cousin and his aunt, who would be his fourth wife. David O. Kingston marries 15-year-old Kingston, who attempted to run away but was apprehended by her father, beaten at the Washaki stables that we talked about. So those are just some of the well-documented cases. Um, according to former members of the order, the decades of inbreeding have resulted in rampant birth defects throughout the family. Some children are said to be born blind, others with missing fingernails or undersized heads. One baby deemed to have too many deformities was allegedly put in a shoebox and left to die. Mark Shirtleft, the Utah Attorney General, has spent years, the, the old Utah Attorney General had spent years investigating the group, gathering birth certificates and genealogical data. And he sort of believed that the cult was guilty of a long list of cl- crimes, including child labor, tax evasion, welfare fraud, polygamy, and the sanctioning of underage marriages to blood relatives. His efforts have not been strong enough to dismantle the group. He would say, quote, I strongly believe they are an organized crime family. When people hear organized crime, they think of mobsters. I don't think they're organized crime in that regard, but the racketeering statute defines it as conspiracy or pattern of illegal activity done in concert with others. If they are money laundering or making money in support of polygamy and incest, then they probably meet the statute, end quote. There are many accounts of former members that you can read online to hear more about the incest. I just want to talk some about their holdings. Uh, These are some of the holdings, but it's not limited to... Uh, it's hard to get an accurate holding, but these are some of the holdings that are listed legally. They own the West Deep Creek Irrigation and Power Company, Standard Restaurant Equipment Company, IA Castle Corporation, the Latter-day Church of Christ, Fidelity Funding Corporation, KGE Inc., Colt Inc., CW Mining Company, related entities, the Co-op Mine, the Co-op Mining Company. They own Standard Industries, Mountain Coin Machine Distributors, Best Distributing Amusement Games, NUB Corp, American Digital Systems, PPMC Inc., UPC Inc., ANR Company Inc., Hiawatha Coal Company Inc., RE Company Inc., PGAC Inc., Westwood Inc., KCPC Inc., Spectrum Inc., World Enterprises, Little Red House Montessori, 
Michael's Shoe Repair and Men's Store, Holtz Inc., National Business Management Inc., Specialty Consultant Services Inc., Spiffy Ice and Cold Storage, The Kingston Dairy, Kearns Property Company, Kingston and Associates, Quick KWIK Industries, Garco Industrial Park, AM Security Alarm Company, Davis County Cooperative Society Inc., Fountain of Youth Health and Athletic Club, Bail Bonds Specialist, Advanced Vending, DU Company Inc., HK Engineering Inc., Sportsman's Pawn Shops, Eastside's Market, Family Stores, True Value, so any of the Family True Value dollar stores, uh, Sportsman's Bail Bond Specialist, Sportsman's Fast Cash, and the COP Coal Development Company. And, of course, there are more, but it's said that uh, a lot of their the workers in these stores are, you know, group members. I told you I would talk about the the scandals relating the mines. In 2003, several dozen coal miners were fired from the Kingston-owned mining operation. Mine managers contended that workers had been fired for not returning to work after two fellow miners were disciplined for job-related issues. Oddly enough, these same workers had been making noise about poor working conditions at the co-op. They had openly protested safety concerns, low salaries, and lack of benefits. The miners, mostly Latino, were making between $5 and $7 an hour for dangerous back-breaking work. The national average of coal mine workers across the nation is about, about the t- in 2003, was about $18.30 per hour. The Kingstons were getting a great deal employed, employing these uh, workers. So workers contacted a mining union to see about forcing better working conditions. When the company found out... Uh, this is from Bill Estrada, the miner for the co-op. He said, quote, When the company found out we had contacted the UMWA and Independent Mining Union, they started making threats. They said they'd call the INS or the police. They said anyone who considered organizing with the UMWA would be fired. True to their word, when workers protested the front of mining offices, the, the Kingston had Emory County sheriffs remove the offending employees as trespassers. These workers were fired. But this backfired for the Kingstons. The firings drew national media attention, and union supporters started picket lines in front of various Kingston businesses, including the East Side Market. Uh, the Kingstons, who were camera shy, were once again in the news, especially after a lot of abuse allegations. And reporters started delving into their finances with a vengeance. And it was a shock to many people to realize that this group, mostly viewed as a strange polygamous group, owned a coal mine. And the stories came out like crazy and this group was sort of brought to the forefront a lot of the kingston groups are holding companies they have vast tracts of real estate they have a lot of uh, rental properties they're big into diversifying if you look at a lot of their buildings they're sort of these run-down buildings it's said that maybe their kingston central offices is 3212 south state street This is a two-story brick building that has no business signs, but houses the law offices for Paul Kingston and his brother Carl. Carl Kingston is the attorney for the Davis County Cooperative Society and other Kingston concerns. There's all kinds of accusations of what they're doing with the cash. As far as Rowena Erickson goes, remember her? She says that all the cash hoarding is a way for the Kingston to prepare for the apocalypse. Eldon Kingston mocked this theory and said that the family is only a clan of good businessmen. I've linked to a great interview about a kid who um, 
is gay who left the clan, and I would recommend reading his story. As far as the group now, they've managed to stay out of the news a little bit. Rolling Stone articles in 2011. In 2009, they made news for, you know, like I said, this sort of pirate gold stash being stolen. And so uh, it's interesting to think that this group still is in existence. And um, it was a very difficult episode for me to record because, you know, when you read Laureen's case... It certainly isn't perfect, but it's sort of a really relatable story. But then you read the news, and there is this really dark underbelly that's being exposed. And there are all these alleged crimes that are happening, and uh, it's really something hard to square. Again, uh, I'm sorry that this is such a hard episode, but I think that these alleged uh, crimes of abuse need to be talked about so you can understand sort of the dynamic that this group is accused of. If you're a member of this group and you're listening and you feel like you're being unfairly represented, I invite you to come on. There's no way to tell your story other than the stories that are out there. And, I, you know, I'm doing the best I can with the information I have. So, everybody, thank you for listening. I'm sorry this was a long and sort of dark episode. But we will be talking about the other groups coming up. So, thanks for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast and yourpolygamy.com.